welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from bearmarriage.com, where we like to talk about healthy, evidence-based biblical advice for your sex life and your marriage. Today is January 19th. And on the third week of January, for the last, this is the fourth year now, um, I have been looking, taking an in-depth look at the book, Love and Respect. For those of you who know, our journey to writing The Great Sex Rescue, which is our book based on our survey of 20,000 women to see how certain key evangelical beliefs affect women's marital and sexual satisfaction, that journey started because I read Love and Respect. I wasn't planning on working. It was a Friday afternoon in January of 2019. I had a migraine. Um, I was procrastinating and I was on Twitter and some people were debating whether they needed respect or love and they were women. And I thought, well, I need respect. And I, I had that book upstairs and I'd never read it. And I thought this is a great way to procrastinate and feel like I'm still working. So I went and I got the book and I read the sex chapter and I immediately started FaceTiming Rebecca and Joanna, um, Rebecca, my daughter and Joanna, now my co-author on the great sex rescue to talk about some of the horrendous things that were in that chapter. For the next week, we talked about love and respect on the blog. And we were inundated by emails from women who said that that book had enabled abuse in their marriage. We were very concerned. I had been on Focus on the Family several times and Focus on the Family publishes love and respect. So I had a relationship with them and I thought maybe they just don't know. Like they don't want to hurt people. They they must, they would care about this if they knew. Maybe they just don't know. And so we prepared an in-depth report on what women had told us and we sent it in to Focus on the Family and they ignored us. And we thought, well, they can ignore a couple hundred women, but can they ignore several thousand? And that's when we did our survey, which became the Great Sex Rescue. Every year since then, we have addressed a different aspect of the book in January. And I'll put a link to, to some of the things that we talked about um, on each of our podcasts and everything. But I, I do like to revisit this because Love and Respect is still the most used marriage study in North American churches. And um, the main point of the book is that Men must give unconditional love and women must give unconditional respect to their husbands. And respect is something which he desperately needs, according to the subtitle of the book, the love she most desires, the respect he desperately needs. So she has desires, he has desperate needs, must be given unconditionally. And he says, even if he is drinking and straying, even if he has been physically abusive, even if he has withering rage, so much so that she wants to get away and hide. And he describes respect with an acronym, CHAIRS, C-H-A-I-R-S, conquest, hierarchy, authority, listening to his insight, relationship, and sex. All of that must be unconditionally given. This can lead to abuse. It has led to abuse. I have over a thousand stories now from women that we've collected, and we haven't even written them all down, who say that this book has been so harmful to them. A lot of people say to me, but what can I do about it, Sheila? Like, what can I do? And, and I want to talk to my pastor, but I don't know what to tell them. And so we have prepared a one sheet. This is what some of your patron money has gone to is we prepared a one sheet that you can take to your pastor, your small group leader, your marriage um, minister, your counselor, uh, your women's ministry leader. If they are using love and respect as a resource, you can take this one sheet to them, which goes over some of the biggest issues in the book and why it's a problem. And you can download that. We have a link in the podcast notes. It's available now 
thank you to our patrons who allowed this to happen. This is some of the things the funding is being used for this year is to make these one sheets. You can join our patron group too for as little as $5 a month. We'll put that link in there as well. But that is available. And one of the things that is talked about on that one sheet is how Emerson Egrich misuses scripture in the book. And so especially for pastors who are wondering, you know, what's wrong with love and respect? It's rooted in scripture. I wanted to do this podcast where we actually look at how Emerson Egrich in love and respect handles scripture, or rather how he mishandles scripture. Because I hope if you can see this, that maybe it might make people think twice and ask, is this really a biblical book? Is something biblical merely because we can proof text things, or is it biblical because it's in the image of Christ? That's an important question to ask, and I want to explore that now um, with some special guests. So here we go. I am so thrilled to have on the podcast to look at this thorny subject, Nijay Gupta, who is a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. Hello, Nijay. Hi, Sheila. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm just so thrilled that you could come. I really appreciate you doing this. And of course, my intrepid statistician co-author for The Great Sex Rescue and the upcoming book, She Deserves Better, Joanna Sawatsky. Hi, everybody. (laughs) So, Joanna, it was you who actually compiled the original Mm -hmm. spreadsheet of all 230 scripture references in Love and Respect. From that, I tried to organize them by problem. (laughs) and pull out some of the worst examples. And so what I would like to do to both of you is I'm going to throw out um, some of the big picture areas where I think that Emerson Egrich is misusing scripture in love and respect. And then I'm hoping that, that I can get your insight, not just on this book, but also on how these may be common problems that we see in evangelicalism overall, because th- I don't think this applies just to Emerson Egerton in love and respect. I think we see this repeatedly. So are y'all ready? Let's do it. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. Number one, proof texting. <laughs> proof texting is, I, I we hear that term a lot and I'm not sure that everyone understands what it means, but basically what Emerson Egerton does throughout the book is he sprinkles in these snippets, they're not even complete verses usually, just these snippets of verses, like there's hundreds of them in this book, uh, where they're in little, they're in little boxes. And Marshall McLuhan, who is a Canadian, yay, Joanna is also a recent Canadian, but Marshall McLuhan was always a, always a Canadian. And I learned <laughs> about him in my sociology studies in university. But he had this phrase that he was he was famous for, which is the medium is the message. In other words, the way that you deliver the message can become the message itself. And when you are sprinkling verses throughout the book, even little snippets of verses, what is the message that that is being conveyed, guys? I think a lot lot of it is that you're making yourself the authority and you're just kind of using the Bible. Um, You're kind of bolstering your ideas with supposed supports from the Bible. That's the dangerous part. I'll give you an example. You guys might find this entertaining. So I was trying to look for proof texting so I could (laughs) kind of showcase the problem. And I found this book about using the Bible to improve your business strategies if you run a business. And it was taking the story of the woman who was bleeding and she touches Jesus and he says, the power went out for me. And this person used that verse as an example of talking about energy leaks in your business. Where where is your energy leaks? 
And it's it's completely not even using, not only is it not the point, it's actually the opposite of Jesus' point. Anyway, it's one of those things where you're not really interested in what the Bible's saying. You're definitely not looking at a big picture. Mm-hmm. You're just picking things out as kind of um, an easy kind of support for yeah. what you want to say. Um, one of the things that I study is historical Jesus research. There's been this conversation that's gone for hundreds of years, and there's this guy named Dale Allison, and he came to this conclusion. He's kind of a big wig. He's one of these big, big name scholars. He came to this conclusion you can turn Jesus into anybody because you mm-hmm. can pick and choose which verses you want. Jesus is mean. Jesus is nice. Jesus is friendly. Jesus is, you could make Jesus into anybody because you could just pick and choose these verses. That's what I think proof texting is. And it's, mm. it's very dangerous because you can really manipulate people by using the Bible in certain ways. Yeah. And I think, I think the bolstering thing is so important. Like when you're, when you've dropped hundreds of verses into a book, and often verses that don't have anything to do with what you're talking about. It gives the impression, I have biblical support for this, mm-hmm. right? I am the expert. So I'm, I'm going to read you just a couple, okay? Mm-hmm. Here's what he writes. As God revealed the love and respect message, I experienced Psalm 119, 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding. Or another one, the crazy cycle, something that he talks about in love and respect is indeed the evil of folly and foolishness of madness, Ecclesiastes 7.25. Or he says, when counseling couples, I often ask, what causes fights and quarrels among you? James 4, verse 1. That one, that one really got to me too. Like, seriously? Okay. Why, why do you need to quote? It's like saying, um, you know, the sky is blue. And then quoting a Bible verse. No, the sky just is blue. <laughs> like, I'm not saying the Bible doesn't say the sky is blue. But but when you throw Bible verses in there where they're not needed, it gives this message, I am speaking, what I am saying is from the word of God. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the, in, in the seat of an author like that. I, I think there's this spirit of... Okay, so if we're trying to say in his best moments, what's he trying to do? (laughs) So I think in his best moments, what he's trying to do is come across as pious, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. This person knows the Bible. I mean, this is the idea, right? This person knows the Bible. This person cares about the Bible. I'm I'm really, I do think from what I know about this book, this person genuinely loves Jesus. So, you know, they care about the Bible. They care about the people of God. Um, You know, I might be getting, Sheila, let me know. I might be getting ahead of you here, but... What I think is often going on here is, um, you know, as I thought about what we talk about today, one thing came to mind, and that is kind of a methodological saying we use a lot in biblical studies, which I'm sure is used elsewhere. If all you have is a hammer, then all you see is nails. (laughs) This happens a lot in methodology where if you if you see something in the Bible um, and only see it one way, and in this case, it applies to relationships then it's easy to force that construct onto everything or everything you can and then eliminate everything else. So as you kind of asked me ahead of time, thinking about this book, that was the main thing I thought about. On certain occasions, I think any of us could just agree like you were just doing with, you know, God gives me biblical wisdom. Great. We all have that every now and again. The sky is blue. Mm -hmm. Great. Yes. The problem really becomes not in what he says, but often what he leaves out or denies which mm-hmm. ends up being too much, <laughs> you know, that, yes. that ends up being the problem. So proof texting is really dangerous. We all do it, or at least we do it more than we should. Um, I think where it becomes dangerous is, where, and this happens with lots of authors, 
they lack a certain humility or uh, how do I explain this? Because it's not an academic book, but but when you get fact-checked by the guild. You know, when I write something, it gets fact-checked by the guild. So the publisher <laughs> knows I'm going to get destroyed if I don't say things in the right way, right? And a book mm -hmm. like this isn't going to get fact-checked by the guild. Now it is, thanks to <laughs> you guys. But um, I think that's one of the challenges is I think it's okay to be pious. I think proof texting is wrong, but I think what he's trying to do is right. I don't think he's doing it right, but I think what he's trying to do is right. My bigger problem is he only has a hammer. So everything mm -hmm. becomes nails. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And let's look at I, I, the next point is a reason why I think that happens, which is that throughout this book, he virtually ignores Jesus. And I find this a lot with um, Christian authors, especially those who are trying to promote a big view of, of hierarchy, a very mm -hmm. stringent view, especially of male hierarchy, is that you virtually ignore Jesus. Um, we counted it up. 11% of scripture references in love and respect are from the Gospels. Mm -hmm. But even that is misleading because only about 7% are actually Jesus's advice. And among that 7%, often it's the same verse used over and over again. So let me give you an example, because even when he does quote the gospel, often he quotes the gospel quote in the Old Testament. So he'll say, Matthew 19, 4 tells us that God made them male and female. Right. Right. So that's that's hearkening back to Genesis or he quotes the, the disciples in another place. Emerson Egerich quotes Matthew 19, 10, where he says the disciples were saying it's better not to marry. So so you're not you're not quoting Jesus. You're using the Gospels, but you're not actually quoting Jesus. I just I find this very fascinating um, because there is, I think, a difficulty if you are trying to create a hierarchy book mm -hmm. in finding things that Jesus says that actually supports that. And to me, that's a red flag when people always talk about God or always talk about the Bible, but they don't talk about Jesus. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just think it's fascinating because, you know, you read the book of Luke and there's this huge contrast between how Mary, the uneducated peasant girl reacts to the angel and the educated male priest, Zachariah, reacts so poorly. You know, you've got Mary at sitting at Jesus's feet, learning from him. I'm named for the apostle Joanna, who is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> Christ is constantly surrounded by women. And to sublimate women, you have to ignore the actual work and life of Christ. Yeah, like what? what's up, DJ? Like people quote the epistles all the time, but they so... I often find, especially in evangelical spaces, Jesus's words get lost. You know, I, I, I have a few reactions to that. One is um, Paul, Paul. Now, I love Paul, by the way. That's my main area of study. But Paul can come across very kind of linear like we do. Um, I think Paul thinks like we think like Paul in many ways. And so the styles of argument and the deductive reasoning and all that, it comes out in ways that, that I think makes sense to most of us. Jesus is a poet. He's a Riddler, right? He says things in parables. And so it's hard to fit into a box. And so Sheila, when you're, when you're talking about, you know, what's up with this, um, you know, a lot of what I think is going on is when I talk to my students about types of arguments, there are two types of arguments. There's deductive arguments and there's inductive arguments. And someone that's writing a book like Love and Respect is writing a deductive argument. They're saying there's a pattern 
and I can show you how that pattern fits everywhere. Now, the advantage of a deductive argument is it can change the way you look at things. The problem with one is you tend to force it onto everything. And going back to your question, you can't often fit any deductive arguments on Jesus because he's going to do lots of different things. He's going to defy stereotypes. He's going to defy constructs like you could just really lock Jesus in to one thing. So I think that's part of it. I think the other thing, too, is maybe and I, don't, I haven't spent time in this book the way I should have for this interview. But but maybe it's because Jesus people see Jesus as God. So it's harder for people to say, I'm going to be like Jesus, even though mm -hmm. that's kind of a WWJD thing that we used to do. Right. But it's harder for people to say, I want to be like Jesus. Um, at the same time, Jesus and Paul are both single. So in some way, they're kind of misfits for this kind mm -hmm. of argument in general. But um, that, that is interesting. I, I wouldn't have an immediate reason why I would think that Jesus would be left out. Um, but I, I do think that there are times where Jesus puts himself in situations that we would think are scandalous. So, mm -hmm. for example, you know, Joanna was talking about this. You know, there were women that traveled with Jesus. I think that's often ignored. Luke chapter eight, there's three and perhaps many, <laughs> mm -hmm. at least three and perhaps many women that travel with Jesus, uh, presumably most of them single, um, widows or not, uh, women that used to have demons, you know, so mm -hmm. we're, we're talking about women that uh, maybe had lower respect in society, some of them younger women we don't know and so that's going to create some questions about what jesus is doing we have jesus hanging out with women at a well and as you might know that's a place where romance happens in the old testament you yep. expect a betrothal you ex at least expect intimate conversation and jesus does that and so jesus gets him into all kinds of situations that we would think are um, scandalous or at least raise questions and that's hard to fit into a neat construct yeah, like love and respect. Well, here's another reason. I got this from a horrible Christian patriarchy book called It's Good to Be a Man by Michael Foster. Hmm. Um, it sold quite well when it first came out. I hope it's not still selling well. And there was a lot of news articles about it, but it's it, it claims to be a Christian patriarchy book. I don't think there is such a thing as Christian patriarchy, but it, you know, it, it's just patriarchy and it uses biblical language. But I want to read to you an excerpt explaining why he basically ignores Jesus in the book. And this is what he said. This is a point lost in modern Christianity, where the focus is almost exclusively on the model of Jesus in the Gospels. But while that model is, of course, perfect, it is not complete. It is a model of God as the second Adam, humbling himself to correct the mistakes of the first. It is not yet a model of him ruling over the world as Adam should have. Jesus did not take up the rule of Adam until after his resurrection from the dead and ascension into heaven. To see how God exercises dominion, therefore, we need to look to the rest of scripture. And in the rest of the book, he totally ignores Jesus and just looks at, and so this is the reason why he says, no, we don't need to follow Jesus because God told Adam to have dominion over the earth. That's what we're supposed to do. Jesus didn't have dominion. And so we don't need to pay attention to Jesus. That is bizarre. That is bizarre. But, but this is- I hope he really... doesn't have a red letter Bible. <laughs> oh yeah. Like seriously, we don't need to pay attention to the words of Christ. But I see this all the time in really male dominated spaces or from heavily complementarian pastors. And I just want to encourage our listeners, when you're at church, pay attention 
to how often your pastor talks about Jesus versus how often he talks about God and the Bible. Yeah. Because if he's totally leaving Jesus out, that's a problem. <laughs> okay. So those are the two ways that, that I think Emerson Eggers big picture ways he approaches scripture where he uses a lot of proof texting, little phrases here and there that say basically not a lot, <laughs> um, but just to lend support to say, Hey, look, I'm biblical. And then he virtually ignores Jesus. I want to turn now to how he totally misuses scripture. And we have a lot of examples of that. Um, to get back to the gospels, one of the things he does is he twists Jesus' words to fit his agenda. So in the middle of telling women, for instance, why they can't speak up in their marriage when they have a difficulty with their husband, he, he quotes Jesus in John chapter 16. And he says this, ultimately, we must depend on the helper or the Holy Spirit to convict concerning sin. So he tells women, you're not allowed to speak up because you must rely on the Holy Spirit. So it's using Jesus' words to hurt right. women. Or here's another example. When he tells women to put up with atrocious things, so to have unconditional respect, even if your husband is drinking or straying or has withering rage against you, he says you put up with these things in order to get your reward in heaven. And so he gives. he says... Jesus is preparing us to hear, well done. He wants to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. So he's using the words of Jesus, but he's twisting them to hurt women. That kind of makes me mad. Yep. Abusive husbands are not a form of, of hair shirt. Right, which right. is what the ascetics used to use to make themselves uncomfortable so that they would share in the sufferings of Christ. It's a very ascetic view of the world, particularly for women. Men do not have to live in the ascetic manner that women have to, right? Men are to be respected unconditionally by their wives. They're alive. They are to have the red carpet rolled out in front of them. But women, if they are being abused, if they are suffering, uh, are to bear it as the flagellates did as sharing in the wounds of christ and that is a dangerous theology yeah i mean with proof, with proof texting you know you could do anything so you could also make the counter argument jesus says i came to bring a sword not peace i came <laughs> to divide a family you could say oh he's okay with you know so it's so easy to use verses the opposite way I mean, mm -hmm. obviously, in, in these cases, he's not even using verses that are specifically about marital relationships. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it, it is tough because if you don't know better and you pick up this book and you just take for granted, this is a pious person, this person loves Jesus, this person maybe went to a Bible college, you know, they've been in ministry for so many years. It's kind of, it. it, it is kind of you know, almost like a siren song, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Where you just sort of take it for granted because um, it's sold a bunch of books and it has a bunch of Bible verses in it. You really need, you know, someone to be able to say, hey, there's more in the Bible than this. And this doesn't tell the whole story. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to the next one. Ready? He quotes pagans. <laughs> as if they are right. I love this one. He does this twice. We found two instances for this. The most egregious is in Esther. So in the book of Esther, if you remember, 
King Xerxes asks Vashti to dance um, in his, he's been partying it up with all the nobles in the land for a week. They've, they're all really drunk. And he asks Vashti to come out and dance. And the Hebrew, some, some people debate whether the Hebrew says wearing just her crown as opposed to wearing her crown. So he's basically asking her to get it on for like the men in the crowd and she refuses and then um the pagan ad administrators in the land tell king xerxes you need to do something about this or else you're empowering all of the women not to respect their husbands okay mm -hmm. and that verse where the pagans are, are saying that this is really dangerous because now all the women are going to feel like they don't have to respect your husband that is used as a positive thing by as if the pagans are right. So I'm going to read you a little bit. First of all, he has this scripture highlighted. He says, women virtually ask to be unloved when they, quote, look down on their husbands. Esther 117. He's quoting a pagan. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And I'll read you the, the rest of the, the other part of it. This is actually in a big paragraph. The male fear of contempt is dramatized in the first chapter of Esther. What was the fear? That wives would start to despise their husbands and defy them. The result, there would be no end to the contempt and anger poured out by wives on their husbands throughout the king's realm. And what he's essentially saying there, and he goes on to talk about how men fear contempt. And so it's so important that women do not show contempt for their husbands. And, and yet he's rooting this argument in the pagans in the yeah. book of Esther. And I do want to give a caveat, which is that there are plenty of times in the scriptures where pagans are shown to be righteous, right? So we're recording this the day after Epiphany, and we just celebrated the Magi coming to see Christ as an infant. And we know that the Magi were pagan. And so they are perhaps Zoroastrian, but they uh, are not followers of Yahweh. And they are shown to be righteous and to be doing a obviously very good thing. Um, but in the case of Esther, <laughs> these are not pagans who are making good life choices. These are a bunch of nasty carousing dudes who would really like to see a naked queen. That's not really sympathetic. This is not an example to which we should aspire to follow as those who claim Christ. Yep. Context is really important because again, you can try to prove all kinds of things. I mean, the most, one of the most famous ones is violence. You know, the, the, the slaughter of the Canaanites, you know, you can justify violence by using scripture. You can do all kinds of things by using scripture. And so, I really think actually, Sheila, some of this falls on the publisher. The publisher should be partially <laughs> responsible for saying, hey, you know, this this isn't the best way to use the Bible. Um, because what you want to do is to be drawing from patterns that you see throughout scripture. And you also want to take into account some diversity of how things are treated or how they appear. And this just doesn't seem to do that. That picking and choosing, it's like when a sermon starts with the topic and then just sort of sprinkles in Bible verses here and there. Um, mm -hmm. That's really the eyes of the author and the views of the author that are being, you know, just kind of like sprinkled with Bible verses. That's That seems to be what's happening here repeatedly. Yeah. And interestingly, it, it repeatedly happens in a way in which men are given authority over women. Like <laughs> there's a pattern to how he keeps doing this. And first he, he, he um, quotes first Samuel four, verse nine as well. He says this, 
a husband is geared to hear the command and then he quotes, take charge and fight. Okay. So he's, he's talking about how men are ready to go and, and they want to fight for their marriage and husbands are, are, are geared to hear, to hear this command and to enter into battle. The problem again, is that if you go back to first Samuel four, verse nine, it's the Philistines who are saying this. It isn't the Israelites. What was happening was there was a battle and the Israelites were going against the Philistines and the Israelites were saying, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant and let's take it into battle with us. Now, that wasn't a good idea for a whole bunch of other reasons. <laughs> and, and the high priest at the time wasn't doing a really good job. And Samuel, the prophet, was just a boy at the time. So there they are. They're bringing the Ark of the Covenant. But the point is the Israelites knew that their that their um, victory depended on God, even if they were going about it wrong. But the Philistines were talking about, no, we're going to fight like men. And that's what that's the part that Emerson Agrich is quoting. But that, again, that wasn't of God. And that's he's just quoting a jeer. it positively. Yeah, it's just a jeer. It's just, hey, come on, to thumbs chest. Like, it's... Yeah. I, I, it's, I don't know when this was written, but my sense is he just had a, a concordance and he's just looking for a key word. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like fight. Mm -hmm. And then he's just saying this will work <laughs> right i mean that that's that's the impression if you're concerned about how love and respect handles scripture and you want to know more about the problems in love and respect the great sex rescue is a great place to start the great sex rescue is on sale in the month of january across all platforms for just a dollar 99 or 2.99 on some and it is on sale in paperback too so now is a great time to get it if you've already listened to it on audio or even if you already have the paperback the ebook is so cheap and when you have the ebook you can always look things up like the word egrich or love and respect and you can find all of those references so take a look for the great sex rescue on sale right now across all platforms you know one of my colleagues scott mcknight he talked he talks about scripture offering two different kinds of things one is wisdom from above which means there's certain things in the bible that are unique to the bible that you can basically only find the bible related to jesus salvation history and then he talks about wisdom from below, where the Bible is going to offer a lot of very helpful things that can be found in other cultures as well, whether it's about raising your children or managing your money. Uh, what's interesting is books like these will often be teaching common wisdom, you know, about marriage, whether you agree with this book or not, you can find this kind of advice in other cultures. But when you're using proof text to support that, it's not very helpful. I think we've been kind of circling that because you don't really need to prove some of those things, right? <laughs> you know, like you could say it's, you know, my wife, for example, is a therapist. She's really uh, into John Gottman, you know, stuff on, on relationships. Yes. She's John, she's worked with John Gottman and, you know, a, a lot of, so she's actually wanted to create a Christian, you know, there are some Christian guys, but some Christian stuff because Christians want to know that it's in the Bible. But in reality, <laughs> a lot of Gottman stuff is scientific and cultural, right? And I feel mm -hmm. like the stuff that this book is talking about, that we're talking about here, a lot of it could be just called from personal experience, things like that. But he wants to put in Bible verses in order to give it this higher level of, of authority and status. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I understand why someone would want to do that, but there are ways, and we're going to get to some of them now, where he does this in a really actually deceitful way. 
Like it's, it's actually quite bad. And this is, this is one of the worst ones. Um, here's what he says. I'm going to quote what he says. The Bible teaches unconditional respect. So he's talking about how women must respect men. And remember that in love and respect, Emerson Eggers defines respect as, do you remember them all, Joanna? Oh, let's see. Conquest. You'll get the H. It, hierarchy. Yeah. Res- R is, is it respect? No, it's, it's chairs. It's just, it's chairs. Oh, authority intimacy insight insight thank you yes yes insight. relationship and what's the s oh it's sex yes so <laughs> so you must give your husband he needs to feel the need to provide so conquest hierarchy authority you must listen to his insight over yours you must give him shoulder to shoulder relationship and sex and all of this must be unconditional and he gives several examples in the book even when he when the husband has been physically abusive even if he is drinking or straying even if he has withering rage so that you want to get away and hide and so he says this the bible teaches unconditional respect and he now quotes first peter 2 verses 17 to 18 and here's how he quotes it Show proper respect to everyone, not only to those who are good and considerate, but harsh. And he goes on to say, this means that women must give unconditional respect to harsh husbands. I want to read to you what 1 Peter 2, 17 and 18 actually says. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. He it's combined Bible Mad Libs. Yeah, he combined two different verses right. and he completely ripped out the first part of it. So while the first verse, verse 17, is addressed to everyone, the second verse is not. Right. And he completely took out the beginning. He combined two things that do not are not supposed to go together. Yeah, that I mean, that's if if I were like a you know second reader on this book going to publication, I mean that that that's duplicitous. You know what I mean? That's mm-hmm. I mean that's that's deceiving. Um, that's yeah, that's just plain wrong. You shouldn't. I mean, if you want to make an argument and say. If this is true for slaves, it should be. Then you got to make that argument, which I don't think can yeah. be made, but he should make that argument. Mm-hmm. Um, or to say that wives were treated just like slaves in the ancient world. Okay, it's crazy, but and I could argue against that, but at least he would be making the argument. But yeah. that's, a, that's a misuse of scripture for sure. I mean, in, in so many cases, it's like, okay, this is what the person believes. They went to a seminary and they were taught this. But in this case, that's, you know, that's just trying to squeeze this square peg into a circle hole. That's not possible. Yeah. And the only way it works is if he thinks wives actually are slaves, <laughs> which, you know, makes sense. I mean, just the word <laughs> conquest itself seems really terrifying. <laughs> yes. Okay, here's another example of, of how he misuses passages. And here's where he makes conclusions that the text doesn't support and and where the text isn't even intended for that. I know we've talked about this a little bit, but I want I want to give a longer one here because this is this is this one I find really interesting. And it's how he handles 1 Corinthians 7. So if you recall, 1 Corinthians 7 is a whole bunch of Paul's thoughts on what we, how we should handle marriage, whether you should get married, whether you shouldn't get married, you know, what people should do if they are married, what people should do if they're single, etc. And I'll, I'll read to you what, what Emerson Eggert says. 
A scripture passage that I often reference regarding goodwill in marriage is 1 Corinthians 7, 33 to 34. Paul assumes that married couples in Corinth have goodwill towards each other. He points out that an unmarried man has more time for doing the Lord's work, but that a married man, and here's the quote, is concerned about how he may please his wife verse 33. Paul goes on to say that it is the same for a wife who is, quote, concerned about how she may please her husband. A good-willed husband does not try to displease his wife, but to please her, as Paul clearly states in 1 Corinthians 7.33. I always urge a wife who is feeling unloved to be slow in asserting that her husband is unloving or does not want to love her. That is impugning an evil motive upon her husband, which is too drastic a judgment. True, a husband may not be as loving as he ought to be, but he is not consciously, willfully, and habitually trying to be unloving and displeasing. During those moments when a husband displeases a wife or a wife displeases her husband, it helps to keep scriptures in mind. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew 26, 41. And indeed, there is not a righteous man or woman on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Ecclesiastes 7, 20. Okay, here's my issue. 1 Corinthians 7, 33 does say that a man is concerned about how he may please his wife. And, and he says, this is why the unmarried should stay unmarried because a married, an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's work, but a married man is concerned about how he may please his wife. Right. That's what Paul is saying. Egrich is using that statement to say that men are concerned about pleasing their wives. And so wife, if you think your husband isn't concerned about pleasing you, you're wrong. Cause the Bible says that men are concerned about how to please their wives. Yeah. It's, it's just an overgeneralization. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it almost seems like, yeah, he's taking this to mean there are no exceptions to that. Right. <laughs> Um, you know, there are, there are verses in the Bible that says, you know, no one does good. (laughs) Does that mean no one has ever done good in the history of the world? No, there are times where the Bible is using generalizations, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it just, to me, I I understand how these books become popular, but it's like, shouldn't we use some common sense (laughs) and say, sometimes people are mean, (laughs) sometimes people are jerks. I, I think that in Emerson and Agrich's case, and I apologize for engaging in some rather blatant psychoanalyzing uh, of a man who I've never met, but it, we know from his own writing that his father attempted to strangle his mother, which as far as evidence of not being a person of goodwill, attempted murder is pretty high in, <laughs> you know, showing that you're not actually a person of goodwill, right? Uh this reads like an apologetic for his father. Whether or not it is or not, we can't obviously say. But mm-hmm. I have a lot of pity for someone who has undergone such incredible trauma and such intense domestic violence. And yet, these words are dangerous for women who are in the same position that Emerson Agrich's mother was in. And we must ensure that our empathy is with the victim. And I agree with you, Nijay, that the publishers need to be more cognizant of the impact of the words that they are uh, allowing to be put out into the world. And speaking of publishers, this book is published by Focus on the Family and by Thomas Nelson, if anyone is interested. So if you give money to Focus on the Family, you can call them and you can ask why they published a book 
That's so misused scripture. But but getting back to 1 Corinthians 7, I, I think what is so interesting about this is it's like he focuses on a phrase that was not the reason Paul wrote that verse. Like Paul's whole point here was about whether you should get married if you're unmarried. He was talking about okay, look, you know, how are we supposed to think of marriage in this context of understanding that we are called to spread the kingdom of God and we're all in this together and the kingdom of God needs to be spread and we're all believers and how can we best accomplish that? And he's getting all these questions about marriage. And so, you know what, if you're not married yet, like, and you're able to be totally sold out for Jesus, go do that. Because once you're married, you have other things to be concerned about. That's what he's saying. And yet Egrich uses this for a completely different reason. And he does this repeatedly throughout the book. And he does this in his blog posts. He, he often quotes this. He, he often insists that men are goodwilled and that 1 Corinthians 7.33 shows you that men are goodwilled. That's not, that wasn't the purpose of that passage. And here's another one. This is this one he uses even more. And that's 1 Peter 3. If you remember 1 Peter 3, um, the beginning of it, it's it's directed to women who were married to men who were not Christian. And that's where he talks about, well, I'll read you what Emerson Eggert says. Another writer of scripture chimes in with Paul on this matter of respect for husbands. The apostle Peter wrote to wives that if any husbands were disobedient to God's word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. First Peter three, one and two. Peter is definitely talking about unconditional respect. The husbands he mentions are either carnal Christians or unbelievers who are disobedient to the word, that is to Jesus Christ. God is not pleased with a man like this, and such a man does not deserve his wife's respect. But Peter is not calling on wives to feel respect. He is commanding them to show respectful behavior. This is not about the husband deserving respect. It's about the wife being willing to treat her husband respectfully without conditions. And in context, and as he goes on throughout the book, he is saying, don't bring up issues. Like you're not, you you cannot criticize, you cannot talk to your husband about things that you are upset about. In fact, in the book, the only example in which you can do this is to say two to three sentences every 10 to 20 days. Other than that, you can't, you're not supposed to bring up these things where your husband might be wrong because you have to listen to his insight. You have to be under his authority. You have to give him hierarchy. The issue is that's not what Peter was talking about here. Right. And this frames his entire book is that you must win him without words. And he uses that without words thing over and over again to say, wives, you can't talk about these things. You know, you must win him without words. So if he's treating you badly, you just must have a, a chaste and gentle and quiet, etc. You can use so many other verses. You can, you can go to Romans chapter 10 and it talks about how will anyone know unless the word is spoken to them? You know, <laughs> you could just play this kind of back and forth badminton with, you know, one one off verses, uh, you know, I. First Peter and the pastoral epistles and other places, you know, I know you're not talking about the household codes, but I've been doing a lot of work on the household codes recently. And um, by which you mean Ephesians five in general, yeah, Ephesians just, just five, for Colossians yeah. three, first Peter mm-hmm. has once and the pastoral epistles. And these are these places that say women submit, slaves submit. And there's a lot of discussion and scholarship about 
to what degree are we meant to take that on as a construct for our lives today? Because every time someone says, oh, the Bible says wives submit to your husbands, then do we also have to say slaves submit to your masters? Because, oh, no, 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 that's wrong. Slavery is wrong. But this part's okay. And like, no, how can, how did we get to slavery was wrong? Well, we actually, that, that actually came from culture. It was the biblical arguments that were trying to support slavery and, you know, the, the more biblical arguments were pro-slavery in the abolition movement in the British, in the, in Britain and in the U.S. And it was cultural arguments about the equality of humanity uh, that were pro-abolition. And so, you know, once we start to enshrine the household code with this, you know, this is the way God is intended for all times, then we also are creating uh, justification for slavery. And so we kind of have to handle it delicately, kind of like doing surgery, like you don't want to nick an artery, right? So you kind of have to say, what of this is actually from God? And what what was mm, trying to change things within its own culture? And so um, the household codes came from Aristotelian conception of the integrity and order of the family. So that's and, Aristotle. Sorry, yeah, just, that's just for the Aristotle. Yeah, that's Aristotle and Plato, and you know, and what comes from Aristotle is this idea of male superiority, superiority of masters over slaves. Christians, whether we like it or not, took that on and decided they were going to try to work within it to change relationships. The question for us then is, do we continue with that? And we decided no on slavery, mm -hmm. right? We made a clear decision on that. But then on parents and children, we said, yeah, okay, children should respect parents. So then it's not a foregone conclusion what we do with wives then. We actually have to think through what exactly is being called for here. Um, so I, I just want to say that because it matters to me what kind of text we're in in scripture to know whether there's a direct application Mm -hmm. uh, from scripture. So for example, just an obvious one, Jesus says, if your right hand sins, cut it off and throw it out. Yeah. And 99.9% and .9 of Christians are going to know that's hyperbole. Yes. <laughs> Poor one or two people out there that don't know that, but the rest of us know that. So we have to take into account what kind of text we're looking at to know exactly. Right. And we all naturally do that because Paul said, most of us should not be married and yet most of us are married and so we kind of inherently understand so I, one of my biggest concerns this book is just this kind of not sensing what kind of text you're reading and you've pointed out several times with who's talking is this a narrative is it a good story or a bad story right is the character virtuous can the same thing be found in multiple places this author is almost operating with the opposite where, you know, it doesn't matter if it's anywhere else, as long as it's here and said, then it's true. And that, um, that's just not the best way to use the Bible. The Bible's the best way to use the Bible is to really respect who the writer is and what the writer is trying to communicate. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want to get into this, this passage in first Peter three is really important that we understand who it was written to. It was written in Roman times when the church was exploding with all these new converts. And in very many cases, you would have female converts where the husbands weren't converted yet. And this was a pagan society where husbands had absolute authority over their wives to the extent that you could kill them and they wouldn't be prosecuted. 
Okay. So Peter is talking to a situation where the woman has been converted and has become a follower of Jesus and the husband hasn't. And he's saying, look, win him without words. He's saying, just don't preach at him. Just don't preach that he has to convert. Just be a changed person and your husband's going to see it. That's what he's talking about. He is not talking about 2023 Western world where a husband is doing something that is hurting you and you want to talk to your husband about it. And yet that is how Emerson Egrich is using this passage to say, win him without words. I'll, I'll go on. This, here's another thing he says about the same passage in a different part of his book. What Peter is saying is that your quiet and gentle spirit will melt your man's heart. If you're in a conflict and you remain respectful and quiet as you distance yourself a bit, instead of preaching, lecturing, or criticizing, what will he do? Well, it depends. If your quietness is the right kind of quietness, respectful and dignified, not pouty and sour, he will move toward you. He will want to comfort you and take care of you. In essence, he will want to show you love. For the good-willed husband, the wife's quiet and respectful behavior will act as a magnet. But again, that's not what this passage is talking about. And he uses it that way over and over again. Joanna, you've read this whole book. What's your take on on Egrich and 1 Peter 3? Well, I just don't think that he follows his own advice because he talks about how his wife uh, is upset that he and his sons are leaving candy wrappers on the floor. And apparently she's mentioned this. Uh, But my understanding is, as far as I can recall, is that she's also cleaning up the wrappers. And then she goes away for a weekend and comes back and says, did you miss me? And he says, no, because he could with impunity leave candy wrappers on the floor. And wet towels on the bed. And wet towels on the bed, yes. Mildew (laughs) is of no consequence. (laughs) When people don't speak up, what happens is that they continue to be victimized. I my background really is is in public health, and my concern in all of this is speaking at it more from like a health promotion perspective, right? So whose health is being promoted, whose health is being disregarded? Because typically, with a health promotion approach, you try to make sure that everybody's health is being promoted, quite literally, right? So we talk a lot about harm reduction, making sure that uh, everyone is treated with dignity. You know, this isn't a very secular discipline. Uh, I None of my training is at Christian universities. And yet I read this and I think there's no dignity of the person here for women. There's lots of it for men. Um, mm-hmm. But even then it isn't dignified to take advantage of someone else. Um, mm-hmm. It isn't good. Christ says that we will have life and have it abundantly. And this just doesn't read like the abundant life to me, as far as I can tell. Yeah. One of my reactions to this and other parts of the book as well is there are some prominent counterexamples that he doesn't entertain. So, for example, if we look at the patriarchs uh, from the Old Testament, uh, the wives talk back and it's pretty (laughs) normal and it's not treated as a bad thing. So Sarah, Sarah, on many occasions kind of talks back to Abraham and I'll come back to that in a moment. But even Jesus, Jesus wasn't married, but women talk back to Jesus on a number of occasions. And he's not only okay with it, but he kind of rolls with it. We could talk about 
the wedding at Cana mm-hmm. and you know, Hey, well, it's not my hour. And she's like, just do it. He's like, okay, fine. You know, he <laughs> seems to be fine with that. And then um, Mary and Martha with the death of Lazarus, where were you Jesus? And he doesn't say, woman, don't talk to me that way. He actually gets into a theological discussion with her. There mm-hmm. are no, and then the, the Syrophoenician woman, and they have this kind of playful critique. Um, he has these conversations. He never rebukes a woman for being, sassy or in his face um to come back to the sarah story this is interesting i just came across this again and it kind of struck me um paul is talking to the galatians and he wants the galatians these grace galatian christians to stop listening to false teachers and he actually quotes from the old testament and he says um cast out the slave woman and her child meaning get rid of these false teachers He's actually quoting Sarah's sassy words to Abraham about getting rid of Hagar. So Abraham's the boss, right? In the family, he's the (laughs) patriarch, he's in charge. And if he wants to sleep with Hagar, that's his legal cultural prerogative, right? And Sarah's saying, I can't handle her anymore, get rid of her. So she's being sassy, right? Paul's quoting this as the very words of God. To the Galatians to get rid of the false teachers. So he's not only condoning <laughs> ass, but he's using it as an argument against false teachers. It's fascinating. So there's great counterexamples where women are kind of, you know, what's interesting is we don't see one paradigm of relationships. I guess that would be my conclusion after reading this book, which I didn't read, but that would be my conclusion is there are so many different forms of relationships that they don't really fit into one type. That's my problem with a deductive approach like this is you have Jesus with all these different relationships. You have all these different relationships in the Old Testament. And then you have the problem of someone like Paul or Peter writing about relationships under the Roman Empire where they're actually trying not to change things on purpose as early Christianity is getting off the ground. Mm-hmm. Right. And writers like this, like this guy, they're just not taking any of that into consideration. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. I want to end this. This is the last passage I want to look at. And that's how he handles the Genesis story. I'll I'll read you what he says. And then I want to read you the application because it's the application that really gets to me. So he talks about, and this is then the chapter on insight, how we need to listen to our husband's insight, not our own insight. And he goes on to talk about how Eve was the one who was deceived and how he doesn't believe that women haven't women's intuition anymore, we really need to listen to men's intuition, because that's the one that God has put in authority and hierarchy over us. First of all, this is just a little thing. He does write this, Eve ate some of the fruit, then Adam came up, or perhaps she went and found him. Not in the text. He was Not there. In the text. <laughs> he was there. So he actually just simply plain talks about the, the Genesis story wrong. So in scripture, Eve and Adam are together. I had a great um, post that was inspired by Joanna um, a while ago on how baby Bibles handle the the Genesis story, because in most baby Bibles, you will see Eve alone with the serpent, even though scripture clearly says that Eve and Adam were both there. So I will point to that in the podcast notes uh, where you can take a look at that and how your baby Bible um, stands up to that. But but he goes on to talk about um, this this scenario of Eve and the serpent. And here's here's his interpretation. Apparently, Eve concluded that she knew far more about what was best for her and her husband, and she influenced him to follow her lead. Adam listened to the voice of his wife and was cursed. 
And this is how Egrich sets up this chapter is that it is wrong for men to listen to the voices of their wives. Because this is why Adam was cursed was because he listened to the voice of his wife. Right. Okay. So the Bible does say like in the Genesis story, um, when, when God is talking to Adam, he does say, because you listen to the voice of your wife, but, but the context of that is like, Adam wasn't in trouble for listening to Eve. Adam was in trouble for listening to Eve and eating the fruit. Right. Like it wasn't the listening to Eve that was the problem. It was the fact that he listened when Eve was telling him or was suggesting they do something bad. <laughs> and, and it could be that he wanted to please her or something. There could be something behind that, but it's not her voice that's the problem. It's, you know, in fact, you know, whenever people point to like First Timothy or First Corinthians that talk about Eve being in trouble, you know, then I point them to Romans 5 where it's actually Adam who's to blame. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the scripture blames them both pretty, I think pretty fairly, you know, <laughs> um, but I don't want to get off topics. You could tell me if I've gone too far, but um, you know, I got into this argument once, which on social media, which happens and uh, with a friend where he was basically making the argument that women never say anything important in scripture and nothing kind of gospel central. That's like essential. And so that put me on kind of a hunt for what's the most important and that took me to Luke chapter one, Mary. I was about uh, to say, the, what about the Magnificat? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so here you have this massively long, you know, song or speech by a woman that in many ways is kind of like a narrator giving you kind of the story before the story happens. And um, there is a, a book um, that I read called The Jewish Teachers of Jesus. And one of the big ideas of the book, which shouldn't be that surprising, but was kind of novel to me was everything that Jesus taught, essentially he learned from his teachers, which I just never thought about that before because I thought he's God, right? He just came up with it, but it makes sense because it's so similar to other wisdom teachings that are in Jewish tradition. Anyway, as I wrote this book, which we may talk about another occasion, tell her story, which is coming out in March. One of the things that really struck me was with Joseph out of the picture pretty early in Jesus's life, especially his formative years, his teenage years, who was and, and and what's interesting is Jesus isn't traveling with a male relative, which I think would have been the norm of the time that he would have an uncle or a grandparent or an older cousin that would be like his mentor or like a proxy father, kind of, a you know, kind of a father figure. He doesn't. It's just Mary. So it's interesting if you think about who would have had the highest formative influence on Torah on Jesus, even during his ministry, it would be his mother. I mean, there's no other figure that's named that would make more sense. So it's interesting when people say, oh, can we let women be teachers or preachers? One of the first things I say is what a risk God was taking in putting his only son into the hands of Mary, if that were true. If that were actually true that women are you know, like, like you're saying about Eve, too gullible, easily deceived, you know, simple mind or whatever. What a strange and even wrong move of the place, the most precious being in the world into the hands of Mary, not just for his infant years, right? But for basically his whole life. I mean, she's there right at the end, right? She's one of the only people there at the end. Um, so it's, it, it, this is one of those counter arguments to this, you know, weird argument about Eve 
that, you know, God does, you know, actually gives us the biggest trump card of all to place Jesus into the hands of a woman for basically his whole life. Amen. All right. Well, I want to read to you the application that Emerson Egrich now makes after claiming that men should not listen to the voices of their wives and women should not insist that men listen to their voices, but women should submit to the voice of your husband and not become defensive. Here's an example that he gives. For example, on occasion, a husband may venture into that dangerous territory known as, honey, you're putting on a few pounds. In truth, it is far more than a few pounds. His wife has let herself go and he feels it is time to be honest. What he usually gets in return is, you should love me no matter how I look. Or he may be told he knows nothing about her eating disorder and that he should be checking on his own pot belly. If the husband is on the trim side, as many men with very overweight wives often are, she will bring up some other log that he needs to get out of his own eye. That time she caught him viewing internet pornography or overindulging in alcohol. The truth is, it's very easy for a wife to discount or disparage a husband's suggestion that she has some problem that needs correcting. Even if he is gentle and diplomatic in suggesting that she needs to make a correction to avoid hurting herself or others, he is quickly silenced. She is offended, wounded, and angered by his assessment. He is accused of being without understanding and compassion. He has no right to speak, and he will often wind up being shown contempt. So, <laughs> so. Okay, first of all, I just I just I just looked this up. Joanna, you will like this. I checked out the stats because he he seems to have this thing that often it's thin husbands who have overweight wives. So here is the data on overweight men versus overweight women. Um, if we divide people into overweight and people who are obese and people who are severely obese, 34% of men are overweight, 43% are obese, 7% are severely obese. Among women, it's 27, 41, 11. So it's really virtually the same. Yeah. <laughs> if anything, women have a bit of an edge. I, I would have assumed the opposite, yeah. <laughs> As and, and speaking for overweight, <laughs> I can claim that there are many people like me. But here's so so he wants to go say to her, hey, you're putting on a few pounds. And Emerson Egbert says she's basically not allowed to say, you are just as big, you're using porn, and you're an alcoholic. <laughs> Any of those things she can't say because she's supposed to listen to his insight, not hers. Joanna, your take? Oh, I mean, so first of all, I just want to say that this is really fat shaming and deeply and profoundly inappropriate. There would be a lot of descriptions and discussions in a counseling environment, right? About how do you have discussions about concerns that you have as a spouse for your spouse, right? Be that you're concerned about their health and how they're treating their body. You're concerned about their uh, internet habits, be that pornography or overusing video games or wasting time online that should be spent caring for the children or something like that, right? There are ways to bring these up in a healthy way. Um, but it is not appropriate to assume that the only correct response to this is an issue that I'm seeing is, okay, fine, <laughs> if it's the woman, right? Uh, and she's not allowed to say, hey, but there's this other stuff that's going on that's, in, you know, that's, that's relevant to this conversation. It, it can be problematic, of course, to, to say, yeah, but 
there's a solid, like there is a, a the particular dynamics of any given couple is up to that couple to figure out. And also if they uh, are, are seeking help from a, a licensed therapist, that would be for them to work out in, in the office. But this whole thing is so bizarre. Um, and even the way that he phrases it, that like it's a few pounds, but actually it's a ton of weight and he's thin and she's thin. like, it's just, he's making it out to be that this woman is just not a reliable narrator, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that the husband is doing everything perfectly and being so demure and he's understating the case and it, it, it's, it's he's laying it on so 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 thick mm -hmm. and the only person who can be seen sympathetically if you're taking Ed Rich's words at face value is the husband yeah. and again that's not real life it's yes. cartoonish that was the word that came to my mind it feels well the one of the challenges I have with a book like this is it basically enshrines life in America in the 1950s or 1960s. So it's taking a particular view of life, right? All these examples, everything he's saying, I'm thinking this isn't gonna work around the world. This is going to work in America, in a maybe even a particular part of America in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And I call it a leave it to beaver theology, right? It's trying to enshrine that as what's biblical but it's not going far enough back to the biblical world and even then that's not always i think what we're supposed to do um you know a lot of this you know i don't want to scare our listeners off but a lot of this is what we call hermeneutics hermeneutics is our philosophy of interpretation so you have scripture but we also read the truth of the world through tradition reason and experience this this is not my idea these ideas go back hundreds and hundreds of years but the idea that the Bible doesn't have all the answers to all our questions, right? And so we want to use truth from the Bible, but we also use reason. And by reason, we're talking about things like psychology, sociology. But I feel like the uh, the ideal reader of this book is suspicious of counseling, or at least secular mm -hmm. counseling. Uh, mm -hmm. Or they wouldn't like the fact, Sheila, that you just used some sort of some sort of statistic, scientific statistic, <laughs> because that's going to question the Bible or question a pastor that cares a lot about the Bible. So this is kind of an issue of how we educate our churches to say we can't be afraid of science. We can't be afraid of statistics and studies. But we live in a culture right now where people are trying to, to divide religion and science. Um, so it makes the, the job of a therapist th that much harder. I mean, all the things that you've read so far, just send off these, you know, warning lights of <laughs> abuse and um, gaslighting, right? I mean, it sounds so cult-like. <laughs> yeah. It comes across as a cult to me. At the same time, I grew up in that form of evangelicalism. And so on one sense, I abhor it because I know how manip manipulative it can be. On the other hand, I know it because I grew up in it and it it doesn't shock me, even though it disturbs me. It doesn't shock me because I know it. Mm -hmm. And I know the the people reading the book, the vast majority of them just want to follow Jesus. Yeah. So what really bothers me is if I saw someone in a bookstore holding the book, I probably wouldn't bat it out of their hand. <laughs> I would hold back the temptation, but I want to say there are other books too. <laughs> Yeah. I would want them to not be afraid of other books that that are more methodologically thoughtful. 
but that won't be as neat and tidy. A book is like this is is attractive because it's tidy, right? It establishes a very clear acronym, whatever that was. (laughs) Whereas if I were to write a book, and I wouldn't say I could write the best book on marriage, but if I were to write a book, it wouldn't be neat and tidy. What it would do is say, there are these 10 virtues that all people should have. Try to apply those to your marriage. Some of that we get for the Bible. Some of that should be common wisdom. And I, that just probably wouldn't sell in the millions. <laughs> yeah. I want to, I, I want to build on what you said about how people are are just looking for what they think is biblical advice. And I think they really are. They just want to follow Jesus. And I, the, one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast was I wanted to show you that just because people use Bible verses doesn't mean they're following Jesus totally. and doesn't mean they have the heart of Jesus. And, um, and so when we're trying to understand what the Bible is really saying, we can't just pick a verse. We need to look at the character of Christ because when we see Christ, we have seen the father. Mm-hmm. Christ shows us who God is, what he is like. And so if we're reading something from scripture, which doesn't match up with Christ, that's a sign that our interpretation of scripture is off. Because we should be looking at all of scripture through the lens of Jesus. We need to look at the purpose for each passage, you know, and instead of sprinkling hundreds of half verses throughout a book, you know, let's get back to really delving into the heart of Christ. Because I think when we do that, it will be impossible to write a book, which is so formulaic and which is so focused on men being in charge. And we'll, we'll instead look more at the heart of Jesus about what it means to love God and to love our neighbor and our neighbor includes our spouse. Um, so I, I want to thank you both for joining me on this, on this journey as we look Adventure. into the use of the scripture. <laughs> um, DJ Gupta is going to be joining us again in a couple of months um, to talk about his newest book, Tell Her Story. Do you want to tell us just give us just a brief synopsis of that book? Yeah, you know, I mean, my kind of elevator pitch is, you know, we sit around saying, what can women do or not do? And when we actually read the Bible, women were everywhere doing everything. That's my pitch. So I actually go through many of the named women in the New Testament that we know were actually helping to lead churches. Some of the women that we don't often talk about, like Nympha or Euodia and Syntyche, who are these women? And I talk about women that we many of us don't even know about, like Damaris. Um, so I basically I say, you know, we have these verses that we turn to in First Timothy and First Corinthians to say women can't. And my book is all about the women that did. And, you know, that's I'm sure we'll get into this when I have you back on the podcast. But that's actually a really important part about how you interpret scripture. Like if Paul really meant that women should stay silent in church in First Corinthians 14, then why three chapters earlier was he talking about how women could speak in church? Yeah. Why was he talking about actual women in his life who taught men like Priscilla? Like, like we need to, we need to have a broader vision of interpretation where we're not just looking at a verse, but we're saying, okay, if Paul wrote this, but then in his life, he did the exact opposite, then we must be reading this wrong. That's right. That's what the book's about. Yeah. (laughs) So that's just an important way of interpreting. And that's something which it doesn't really look like Emerson Egridge did as he approached the Bible. And that's too bad. Because as we showed in The Great Sex Rescue, his book did a lot of harm. 
And, and I hope that as we learn this, we can speak up. And so thank you all for listening. Thank you for joining us, Nijay and Joanna. We will talk again in a couple of months about your new book, Tell Her Story. Thanks. Bye. I am so glad that Nijay Gupta could join us and Joanna, of course. And thank you to Joanna for, for making the original spreadsheet. Um, please take a look at the podcast notes. We have a link to that one sheet that you can download now and show to your pastor or small group leader about what the problems in love and respect are. I also wrote a post yesterday, which documented the different misuses of scripture that we went into. Um, and so take a look for that link as well. And you can see some of the things we brought we brought up in today's podcast but i only scratched the surface in today's podcast like seriously you could take a look at every single scripture reference just about and find a problem with the way he used it because his whole approach to scripture is not to see things through the lens of christ but instead to find proof texts for his own views. And it is problematic. And so there's there's a longer post going over even more examples than what we mentioned now. So find those links. Um, and remember the Great Sex Rescue, which is a great antidote to, the, to love and respect is on sale on ebook throughout all platforms. It's on for, I think, uh, $2.99 or $1.99 in some platforms. And on Amazon, it's $5 off. So take a look. It's a great time to get the Great Sex Rescue. And maybe one day, in January. I won't have to do this anymore. I already have plans for January, 2024, but you know what? Let's pray together that I don't even have to do it because love and respect is no longer the most used marriage study in North American churches because churches have woken up. So will you join me and pray for that? Because you know what church we do deserve better. Thanks very much for joining me and I'll see you again on another Bear Marriage Podcast.